Our lesson today is from John 3, starting with verse 14. I'll give you all a moment to find it. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Those who believe in Him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come into the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open up our uh, minds and uh, our eyes this morning as we read your scriptures. But most of all, we pray that you would open up our hearts so that you would write your word uh, on them and that we might live as your people. In your son's name we pray, amen. You know, you see a lot of John 3.16 shirts and John 3.16 coffee mugs and John 3.16 bumper stickers and uh, John 3.16 tattoos even. People love John 3.16 and why shouldn't they? It's a great, great way of expressing the wonderful message of God's love for us. But you don't see a lot of John 3.14 t-shirts or John 3.14 tattoos and why not? And John 3.14 is just as much in the Bible as John 3.16. It's two verses away. It also talks about God's love for us and the gift of his son for us, but yet we don't celebrate John 3.14. Maybe it's a little rougher around the edges. It tells this strange uh, story, or it alludes to this strange story about uh, a snake in the wilderness and Moses The love of God is like picking up a snake. That would be a strange t-shirt, but I would buy that t-shirt and wear it. John 3.14, the love of God is like picking up a snake. You know, we've uh, celebrated John 3.16 so much, and I I do truly love that verse. Uh, And it is this magnificent encapsulation of the gospel that God has sent his son for us, that we might live with him. Martin Luther called it the gospel in a nutshell. But I'm afraid that one of the reasons that we focus on John 3.16 so much, and maybe not some of its surroundings, is that we've domesticated it. We've made it familiar. Uh, We all know it. We probably all know it by heart. But all too often we've forgotten its meaning. Uh, It's comforting, and we, we hear it as a message saying that God loves you, and that is wonderfully true. That is wonderfully true. But we've forgotten what comes around that, this story of 
condemnation and then redemption. And then these words about condemnation and light and darkness. Those are much tougher pills to swallow. And so we celebrate John 3.16, but we forget John 3.14 through 15 and then 17 through 21, which tells us, in fact, exactly what John 3.16 means. We've taken John 3.16 and we've distilled it into simply, all, not everyone does this, but all too often the way we approach it is just say, this means that, means that God loves you and he sent Jesus for you. And that's true and it's very comforting. But we forget, we forget, that there's also the reality of condemnation. There's also the reality of darkness. There's the reality of our sin. And we've made uh, and have focused so much on God's love that we've forgotten what his love is in response to. And that his love is, in fact, in response to our rebellion and our sin. So today what I want to help us do in this modern Christian culture where we so lifted up God's love is to remember, remember what the rest of this is about. And to remember, in fact, what John 3.16 is all about. Jesus being lifted up so that we might be lifted up and have new life with Him. Jesus coming to shine a light into the dark places of our world and the dark places of our lives so that we might learn what it means to walk in His light. That's not just a comforting message. It can be a shocking message, especially to a world that wants to continue to walk in darkness. But the gospel isn't about just comforting us. The gospel isn't about reassuring us. The gospel is about transforming us. And we can only be transformed if we actually hear the shocking message that God has taken our sin onto himself so that we might have the opportunity to have new life with him. So what I want to do is to just take, this, take these verses uh, and we'll break it up kind of bit by bit and go through and we'll start with John 3, 14 uh, through 16, and I'll reread it. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Is that a familiar analogy to everyone? Is that a familiar story? For many of us, maybe some of you know that well, but for many of us, that is um, unfamiliar and confusing. What this is a reference to is the story in Numbers 21. Uh, And this, in fact, uh, gets back to Richard's uh, story that he was telling a moment ago, because this is just about as uh, as the Israelites were about to enter the Promised Land. They've been on the road for 40 years. They've been wandering through the wilderness and they'd, um, they'd seen a lot and they've been sustained by God the whole way. And then they come to the edge of the promised land and they meet opposition. And they decide that they've had enough and they go to Moses, the people of Israel, and they complain. And they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we detest this miserable food. Now, first of all, you notice they're just whining because they contradict themselves. They say there's no food and water. And what it really is is that they're just tired of eating the manna, okay? Because there is food. They're just complaining. And they 
are not confident. They are not faithful. They don't believe that God will bring them in to the promised land. They say it would be better if we were back in Egypt, still slaves, than in this place. And so what God does is to send these serpents, these snakes, into uh, the Israelite camp uh, as a consequence of their sin. So the snakes come in, they're biting people, and people are suffering, and they go to Moses and they say, Moses, we've sinned. Go to God for us. And Moses does. And what God tells Moses to do is to craft this bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole, and that everyone who looks at the serpent will be healed. And so Moses does that, and the people who look, and the people who have been bitten are healed from uh, their bites. And then they take this bronze serpent, and they place it in the tabernacle, the tent where they kept the Ark of the Covenant, this uh, reminder of God's promise made real by his law given to Israel. And they put this serpent in the tabernacle as a reminder of this time in their relationship with God where they rebelled against God and God extended forgiveness to them. It's supposed to be a reminder of their covenant, a reminder of God's faithfulness even when they were faithless. And so Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up just like that serpent is lifted up. That those who look on the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, that's Jesus. That those who lift on Jesus, who will be lifted up, will then... The implication is receive forgiveness, receive the opportunity of new life. We'll then get to go in to the promised land. And Jesus says that he will be lifted up in that way. Lifted up, that's an interesting word. The most obvious thing that this refers to is Jesus on the cross. The serpent's lifted up on a staff. Jesus will be lifted up on the cross so that he is like that, like that serpent. And there's more to it, though. There's more to it than just that. Because not only is Jesus lifted up on the cross, he's also lifted up out of the grave. And he, after bearing our sins and dying, is then is lifted up, rises to new life, and spends time with his disciples, and then is lifted up once again. He ascends into heaven. The word lifted up or stand up in, in different forms you see it all over John's gospel. And what it does every time is it points forward to these magnificent events that you'll see at the end that tell us what Jesus' whole life was about. Because he dies in our place, then he rises again so that we might have new life. And then he goes up to the Father with the promise that he will return again. The Son of Man will be lifted up, lifted up for this total work of redemption. This total work of redemption. Now, as we studied this passage back on Wednesday night at the, at, the, um, at the small group study on this that's going along with the devotional that I'm sure many of y'all are doing, um, someone asked a great question, uh, and it was this. How can Jesus be like the serpent? Because the serpent is the consequence or the symbol of sin, right? God sends the serpents in to the camp in Numbers 21 as a consequence of Israel's sin. And it, we're all familiar, I'm sure, with the story in Genesis where the serpent goes in and tempts Adam and Eve. The serpents always sin. How can Jesus be sin? How does that work? 
Well, the Apostle Paul will put it like this in 1 Corinthians. God made him, uh, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross and then in his resurrection and ascension in response to the cross is like the serpent in that he became sin. He bore our sin, your sin, my sin, all of our sin, all of our rebellion like those petulant children in the wilderness in his own body. He took it upon himself so that he could put death itself to death. And so that we might have the possibility of forgiveness and of new life with him. That God himself takes on the consequences of our sin just like he did with Moses. And so this story points backwards to the reality that God has always been working to rescue his people, but they have always rebelled against him. Not just Israel, but the whole world. And that God, despite our faithlessness, is faithful to us and brings us redemption or the possibility of redemption in Jesus, in his life, and then on the cross, and then when he's lifted up in the resurrection and lifted up as he goes to be with the Father. Redemption for the whole world, for the whole world. The word here for world in John 3.16 is cosmos, okay? Uh, It refers to everything that has been made, not just our ball of dirt and water and gas going around the sun, not just our planet. It refers to the entirety of creation. You remember the the Russian uh, astronauts? We called them astronauts. They called them cosmonauts. The idea is it's everywhere, cosmic, okay? God's love is for the cosmos. It's for all of creation. God's love isn't just for us individually. It's for the world that he made. God made the world good and he plans to redeem it. And the way that he goes about redeeming it is by saving his people with the promise that he's not done yet. He's not done yet. There will be a day when he comes back and makes a new heaven and a new earth that we may live in it. And here we get to another important part of John 3.16. The promise is that those who believe in Christ may have what? Eternal life. Or in the translation that you may have read in your devotional or that I read this morning, may have life in God's new age. Now the translator hasn't gone all soft or whatever. Uh, What he's actually doing is telling you the, the literal translation. Because the word that we translate as eternal life in the Greek is zoe ionion. All right, you've had zoology probably at some point. You know, life, it's about life, it's about animal life. So zoe means life. And then ionion is where we get the word eon, okay? Or, uh, Or age is another way of translating it. Life in God's new age. And so the point isn't just that our souls will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The Greeks believed that. A lot of ancient people believed that in various and sundry ways. That's not new. What Jesus is saying is that God will not only save us so that we may live forever with him, but that God is going to bring a new age, a new creation to the whole earth. That's the great last scene in the book of Revelation where the new heaven, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to the new earth and there's a new creation. And the promise is that God who created the world 
will redeem the world and that we will be able to live forever with him in his new creation. And so eternal life, eternal life begins for us now when we accept Christ. We begin to live or can begin to live like we already belong to that world that is promised to us when Jesus comes back. That is the promise of eternal life. That's what we can start living into. That's what Jesus has come to offer us. Not just the consolation that our soul might float off someday to, uh, to, to live forever, but that we can live with God himself in the world that God made and God loves. It's an amazing, astounding message. Well, what's that look like? The love of God lifted up Jesus so that we might be lifted up into his new life. What's that new life look like? What's it look like when Jesus comes to bring that possibility? And that's where we come to John 3, starting with verse 17. It says this, After all, God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved by him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who doesn't believe is condemned already because they didn't believe in the name of God's only special son. You know, sometimes we as Christians imagine that what our faith is about is determining right from wrong, to say what we condone and what we condemn. And that's how outsiders imagine Christianity sometimes too. It's just to be moralistic and to say, what's, you know, this is good, this is bad. And there's certainly an aspect of our faith that is about that. It's about telling us how to live in response to Christ. And we do identify things that are good and things that are evil. But before we get to any of that, there is the reality, the profound reality of God's grace. And the fact is that Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world. That's what he says very clearly here. He doesn't come to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved through him. The condemnation is already there. We have condemned ourselves by our own rebellion. Just like the people of Israel rebelled, we have rebelled against God. We did that ourselves. We did that ourselves. The condemnation was already there. Jesus has come to respond to the condemnation. Now, yesterday was Pi Day, right? 314. And so since we are, as a, as a culture, are in a mathematical mode, I'll give you a mathematical analogy. Uh, until about the 9th century AD, there was no such thing as zero. Did you know that? Zero was invented by uh, Indian mathematicians in the 9th century. Before that, it started at one. We didn't have a way mathematically to express zero. The Greeks didn't have it, the Romans didn't have it, the Babylonians didn't have it, the Egyptians didn't have it. Now the history is a little bit more complicated than that, all right? but for the most part, they didn't have something they called zero. Now obviously, there were times when people still lacked, when there was nothing, when there was emptiness, but there wasn't a way to express that. All right? Nothingness was a thing, but there was no vocabulary for it. There was no way of expressing that in terms of numbers, in terms of the halfway point between negative one and one. And only when the Indians invented zero, and notice that it's a circle encompassing nothingness, they're making something out of nothing, get the idea? Could we identify in mathematical language the nothingness? And in the same way, as nothingness already was there, even before we came to have a way to identify it in terms of our numbers, uh, condemnation is already there. 
We've brought it upon ourselves. Romans 1 tells that story, that we had every reason to believe in God, uh, to know that he was real, but we turned to our own devices instead and made, became our own gods, did what we wanted to do. But Jesus comes to, when Jesus shows up, in the same way that when, when the number zero is invented, it identifies the nothingness, identifies the condemnation that's already there because what Jesus is coming to do is to identify it and then respond to it and offer new life, offer salvation to the condemnation that was already there. Maybe that analogy doesn't work for you. Maybe, but, So if it doesn't, try this on for size. Um, this last Monday, uh, and again, this story is a little more complicated too, but I'll keep it simple. This last Monday, uh, we came home to discover that our house had been broken into and our TV had been stolen. That's all that was stolen. They didn't touch anything else. Um, they just came, nabbed the TV, and skedaddled. Nobody was hurt, so we were very grateful. Don't worry about us. Um, but there was a period of time there between when the thief arrived and stole the television and when we came home and discovered it that, in a sense, condemnation was already there. He had already brought condemnation on himself because he stole the television. He did something that was wrong. And it was only when we came to live in our house again, when we came back to do all the things that uh, we would you know, do normally at home, that the condemnation was identified and discovered and given name to the guy stole our TV. It was only then when we called the police that we could you know, then identify this condemnation, even though it existed prior to our knowledge. And in the same way, when Jesus comes to live, when God comes to live in the world that he has made that belongs to him in the same way that we came home, he identifies the condemnation, the sin that was already there. But Jesus doesn't cause the condemnation. That's what confuses some people and in some theology sometimes. Some people have this idea that God says, well, these people are saved and these people are condemned. But what happens in reality is that we're all already condemned but then Jesus offers us the possibility to give up our condemnation and be a part of what he's doing, to have new life in him. There, the theologian David Lowe's tells this story about a friend of his trying to put his son to bed. Many of you have probably experienced something like this. Bedtime comes, kid does not want to go to bed. And so he's trying to put his son in bed and he keeps taking him to his room. He says, son, it's bedtime, you've got to go to sleep. Uh, love you, time for bed. Uh, and so the kid gets up again. Son, you got to go to sleep. I love you. It's time for bed. Good night. And the kid keeps getting up. And the kid starts getting angry because he doesn't want to go to bed. And so eventually, the kid says to his dad, uh, I hate you. I don't want to go to bed. And the dad says, well, I love you. It's time to go to bed. And the kid says, I hate you. I don't want to go to bed. Dad says, I love you. There's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. But it's time to go to bed. And the kid says, stop saying that. Stop saying I love you. Because what the kid realized in his little kid brain was that to give in to his father's love, it meant that he had to give up doing things the way that he wanted to do them. You notice that Jesus, when he comes, doesn't ask our permission to save us. We don't have any permission to give. We're already standing condemned. But his salvation comes and it's up for us to accept it by giving up our control, our illusion of control over our own lives. And to accept the Father's love means that for the little kid, bedtime has come. For us, it means that we give up thinking that we're in charge of our own lives 
and saying to God, you're in charge of our lives. The love of God lifted up Jesus so that we could be lifted up into his new life. We could receive new life in him. And so we come to John 3, 17. Uh, excuse me. So we come to John um, 3, 19. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because what they were doing was evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. People like that don't want to come to the light in case their deeds get shown up and reproved. But people who do uh, the truth come to the light so that it can become clear that what they have done has been done in God. There's a Christian music singer named Derek Webb. He has this album called House Show, and it's literally he's recording the album in somebody's house um, and talking to a group of people who've gathered to hear him. And in between his songs, he gives a couple of different talks. And what he says at one point is this. He says, you know, too many of us in Christianity have become convinced that being a Christian is all about hiding our sins from each other or about simply modifying our behavior so it looks like we're good people. That we walk around and we just pretend to have it all together. And we might say, you know, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. But that's a hypothetical. We just sort of know hypothetically that we're sinners. And we can't put our finger on a single sin that we've committed all week long. And what Webb says is that as long as we're hypothetical sinners who hide our sin in our heart and hide it from each other, that we will only have a hypothetical Savior. And it's only when we accept the light of God shining on our lives and shining into those dark corners of our hearts that we will come to really experience God's grace, to really know that we're forgiven when we quit pretending that we have it all together. Now, Webb isn't saying, and I'm not saying, that you need to tell every single person everywhere everything that you've ever done wrong. That's not psychologically a healthy thing to do, probably. But you do need people and places that you can be honest about who you really are. And you do need to be honest with yourself about the true condition of your heart. So you can be honest with God about where you really are. You need that. One way I've experienced that lately is in a covenant group I have with some other Methodist pastors. We, we have a Skype call, like a video conference call that we meet on every Tuesday to talk about our ministry and our frustration, frustrations and our successes and where we think things are going well and where we need prayer um, and you know, our spiritual disciplines and our prayer life and that sort of thing. And it's a way to encourage each other and shine light on each other's lives so that we can experience God's grace. We all need something like that. You need those people in your life that you can be honest with about who you really are. It's sort of like this. When I was in high school first learning to write, I had this English teacher uh, named Cindy Simmons. And Cindy Simmons was famous because she would bleed red on your papers. And you get, I'd get papers back from her, and it would say things like, no, and yuck, and so what, and just covered up my paper with red ink. And of course, nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. But why did she do it? She didn't do it just to be mean. She did it so I could learn how to be a better writer, and so all her students could be a better writer. She deeply cared about her students, but she wanted them to grow. So she wasn't going to pretend that everything was okay. 
She wanted him to get ready. And I'm very, very grateful for her uh, because of the red ink she spilled on my papers. Same thing in college. I had Clyde Williams for early English lit at state. And then I had Hannah Britton for a whole bunch of my political science classes. And they would bleed red and put all kinds of comments on my papers. And it was agonizing to get them back. Because you'd have to work through all of this stuff. You don't like being told you weren't doing well or whatever. And in fact, I had good grades in all those classes, but I still had a paper that was covered up in red ink. Why? Because they wanted me to grow and learn and understand better. And finally, in divinity school, I had another one of those. A.J. Levine, my New Testament professor, would send me back, you know, by then we've, we've advanced. I'd send in things electronically and I'd get electronic comments back. And she would write more comments on my essays than I had words in my essay. Why? I'm not kidding either. She, was, she would give huge comments because she wanted her students to learn. She loved them. She cared about them. She wanted to shine a light in the dark place of their paper. In the same way that we need light shined in the dark places of our lives. That's not always pleasant. In fact, it's often very unpleasant. You get that pounding feeling in your chest when you know that paper's coming back with the red ink that you have to make sense of. In the same way, if you've ever walked out of a movie theater in the afternoon and you come into the bright light, it's painful. That light shining on us can be painful, but we desperately need it. We desperately need it if we're going to say to God, your will be done. If we're going to surrender our lives to his light. C.S. Lewis uh, puts it this way. And this goes a bit back to the condemnation part we were talking about. Uh, there are ultimately only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Does that make sense? In other words, those who are willing to come to the light and say to God, God, shine your light on me. Show me the dark places in my life. Help me to grow Help me to experience your grace and be your person. And those who hide in the darkness and to whom God says, fine, stay in your condemnation. I didn't condemn you. You condemned yourself by refusing to accept the grace that's been extended to you. See, the gospel tells us, and John 3.16, if we have ears to hear, tells us that we can't lift up ourselves. We can't save ourselves. But that Jesus has been lifted up for our sake to shine light into the dark places of our world and the dark places of our lives so that we can have new life in Christ. It's my prayer for you that you, uh, if you haven't already experienced that, that you begin to experience it. And if you want to have a conversation about that after church or any time during the week, all my contact info is in the bulletin. Give me a call. I would love to talk to you about what it means to continue to grow as a disciple, to continue to be one of Jesus' people. My prayer for us is that we would all, we would all look at the one who has been lifted up to shine a light into the darkness. John says that the light has shined into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the call for us today is to side with a victorious light, to side with a victorious light and flee from the darkness. Let's pray. Lord, we pray today, we pray to you today that we would look on your son, lifted up on the cross, lifted up in his resurrection, lifted up to be with you in heaven with the confidence that he has come not to condemn us, but to save us and to help us have new life in him. Lord, we pray that you would equip us 
to live in your light and to be your people waiting on your new age uh, so that we can anticipate in all our words and deeds the day when you make all things right. In your son's name we pray. Amen.